0: Just want to welcome everybody again to another episode of the Blue Banter Podcast, a podcast where we're striving to introduce the members of the RPCNA to the pastors of the RPCNA and to serve young and aspiring pastors by gleaning wisdom from men with ministry experience. I am Joe Smith, one of your co-hosts. I'm pastor of Westminster Reform Presbyterian Church in Westminster, Colorado.
1: My name is Aaron Murray, pastor of Marion Reformed Presbyterian Church in the Promised Land of the North, Marion, Indiana. And before we introduce our guest uh, this afternoon, I'm going to throw it back over to Joe, who's going to give us a real brief announcement here.
0: Yeah, just super quick, something Aaron and I wanted to uh, clear up. After our episode uh, with Ken Smith, we were just talking off the air, and we realized that the uh, discipleship uh, tools that Ken was talking about, uh, they, in fact, were the ones that that Dr York actually used with us uh and so we just wanted to say that Dr York does actually use uh, that exact life on life discipleship material that Ken was talking about Aaron and I were part of a group of five guys that Barry would use that with I think it was it was maybe every single week or every couple uh we would meet with Barry in the mornings and then also uh, upon reflection of our notes we did remember that Barry actually has a class lecture where he does discuss the with him principle and its right interpretation and application. And even at times, we'll slide in uh, the fact that RPTS slogan could just as easily be study with pastors as it is study under pastors. So, we just wanted to uh, clarify those things that Barry is uh, actually implementing. Uh, some of those things in RPTS's curriculum and is doing so himself. And Aaron and I were just talking about that off the air after that episode and thought it was worthy uh, to clear that up. So back to you, Mr. uh, Murray.
1: I think one of the things that that Ken said is he and uh, uh, the president of RPTS have had their rounds kind of about this. And we should have reminded uh, um, Mr. Smith that he had been more uh, effective than he thought he was. (laughs) But uh, that was a few episodes ago. Let's focus on this episode that we have uh, today. We're joined by um, Adam Keener, pastor of Southfield Reformed Presbyterian Church in Southfield, Michigan. Adam, thank you for joining us today.
2: Guys, it's a great pleasure to be here. Um, I am a notorious opponent of podcasts, so (laughs) I hope it reflects upon my respect for you men that I've agreed to participate and full speed ahead. If anybody can can make the most of podcasts and make it edifying, I'm sure it's you guys. So uh, thanks I, for having I, me.
1: I hope so. Yeah, we're, we're happy to have you uh, with us here. It's, uh, you've been one of the guys we've been wanting to have for a while. So I'm glad we were finally able to make this happen. But um, well, we'll just go right into the uh, questions. So we sent them to you ahead of time. So the first one is, we were wondering if you could uh, tell us, you know, a little bit about Mediatorial Kingship of Christ. So we had uh, Sean Anderson on here a few months ago, and he kind of um, gave some descriptions of it, but let's say you've got a new member who comes into the church. They're not overly familiar with mediatorial kingship, which is of course one of our distinctives in the RPCNA. How would you describe what the mediatorial kingship of Christ is? And then I've got a couple other sub questions attached to that.
2: Well, I mean, one of the things I would do is I'm a firm believer in having uh, a good book table, um, and so we have a booklet that actually Sean and myself helped put together called Jesus is King. We we have not yet been sued for copyright by Kanye, so I'm <laughs> hoping that we can avoid that. But um, <clears throat> that was put together by the uh, Synod Special Study Committee on the Doctrine of Christ's Mediatorial Kingship. And so that's a helpful resource that's out there. But Um, In in terms of trying to explain it to folks, I would say sometimes the best way is just to start with some of the truths in our confessional standards. Um, If you look at uh, Larger Catechism 54, as it talks about the ascension of Christ, that's a really helpful place to start. um, Where it talks about the fact that um, Christ is exalted in his sitting at the right hand of God in that as God-man, he is advanced to the highest favor with God the Father, with all fullness of joy, glory, and power, which is a 17th century way of saying authority, right? Mm-hmm. You think of the King James, Matthew 28, 18, um, all power in heaven and earth, all authority in heaven and earth, the, the more recent translations would say authority. So, so uh, And power or authority over all things in heaven and earth, and does gather and defend his church and subdue their enemies, furnisheth his ministers and people with gifts and graces and maketh intercession for them. So I would point people to Matthew 28, uh, you know, right before the ascension, um, Ephesians chapter one, and what is it, verse 21 or 22, uh, that Christ is given his head over all things for the church, uh, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So showing people that at the exaltation of Christ, he's raised from the dead, he's exalted, he ascends into heaven. And it's not merely the kingship that he's had as God from all eternity over all things. Of course, our God is king over all the earth, Psalm 47. But as the God-man, Philippians 2, having humbled himself and completed the work of redemption, therefore God has highly exalted him He's received all authority over all things in heaven and earth. And uh, as God, he can't receive anything. So this is a reward for his redemptive work. And he rules and reigns at God's right hand. He has authority over the nations. Psalm 2. Uh, so, I mean, you, you just go through the litany of scripture passages. Uh, kings and judges have a duty to kiss the sun and submit. Uh, we have a duty to say, as for me and my house, that is my family. So the 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 state the family obviously the church submits to her king and head but it's important in saying all this to to emphasize to people that this is not a truth that is of uh, primarily a political nature we live in a society that is highly politicized everybody wants to talk about politics uh And really, if you look at Matthew 28, right after it asserts that Christ as the God-man mediator has received all authority, it doesn't pivot to say, you know, therefore start a political party. Um, It says, therefore, go and disciple all nations. And you see in larger Catechism 54 that I read, it goes straight from his universal power to his utilization of that power and authority to advance his kingdom, the church. And you see that if you want to pivot again to larger Catechism 191. Uh, what do we mean when we pray thy kingdom come? You can you can look that up. And I, I try to show that to people um, that Christ has a kingdom of power by which he advances his kingdom of grace unto the ultimate uh, consummation in the kingdom of glory. So this is these are all confessional truths. They're right out of the scriptures. And when we distinguish, when we say, oh, we hold to Christ mediatorial uh, dominion or kingship over the nations, all we're really saying is Jesus is king, not only as God, but he's king as the God man, guaranteeing the advance of his kingdom and the discipleship of all nations. And uh, I think most people in their heart of hearts kind of already think that to Mm -hmm. a certain extent, and even many of the people that might deny it, that might say, no he's king as God, but not as the God-man. To be quite honest, those are some of the brothers that are are as zealous as anybody for the practical application of Christ's authority. So in that sense, we don't want to be overly provincial about it and, and, and uh, blow the trumpet too loud, but it is a biblical truth. And the key is that we unite in the application of all areas of life submitting to Christ.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's good. And I think this Kind of goes into some of the other sub questions that we had about the mediatorial kingship of Christ. Um, if you know you're, you're explaining this and someone comes to you and they say, Okay, well, how is that different, or what, what are some differences between mediatorial kingship and Christian nationalism, which tends to be all the rage? Um, how might we distinguish between the two? And that's kind of a lightning rod. So if you want to say, Eh, pass, fair enough.
2: Yeah, I mean. Christian nationalism um, you know I'm a weaker brother this is why I I oppose podcasts I mean I'm like the former alcoholic that you know is opposing all use of alcohol or whatever um, I I can get so wrapped up in internet debates I, I've I've gotten off social media I try to stay clear of of some of these issues that it may not be helpful for me to get involved in. Obviously I did the recent series on the federal vision mm-hmm. and that's all I can handle. So people have been approaching me with their critiques, their analysis of Christian nationalism and this book that's come out. And of course, Doug Wilson, I think published it. And, and so there's all the, you're right. It's all the rage. I hope nobody in my church ever encounters this stuff. Um, I'm afraid if I buy I, I, if I buy the book and read it, I'm afraid I'm going to do a series and try to rip it to shreds. So, <laughs> I would just say this: what I do with all that said, right? My sense of Christian nationalism from a distance, as a, a layman on this topic, is that the difference between the historic Reformed and Presbyterian emphasis upon uh, national covenanting, uh, kings and judges, nations and people submitting to Jesus Christ. The difference between that emphasis from a historic reform standpoint and some of the clowns that are out there on the internet with this Christian nationalism stuff is that we would say the number one opponent of Western traditional Western society as we know it, the good, the bad, and the ugly, but the number one opponent that Western society needs to be worried about is not the... Uh, woke globalists. Mm -hmm. It's Jesus Christ whose scepter will dash to pieces uh, historic or even contemporary traditional Western thought, because the Western world has united in opposition against Christ, whether it's the liberals or the so-called conservatives. It's dominated by advocacy, if not, uh, or, or toleration, if not advocacy of all forms of perversion The American church is filled with compromise, idolatry, immorality. Uh, We can hardly submit to Christ as king, as the church, and he's not happy about that. And so I would say people that have this victim complex, oh, everybody's out to get Western society. Let's join together as Christian nationalists. You're never going to have a Christian nation, right? Christian nationalism could not build um, an outhouse, let alone the kingdom of God. It's not going to build a Christian nation. Um, what builds a Christian nation is repentance, not Adam Keener saying my people, uh, you know, German, Irish, American heritage or whatever, but God's people, God says, my people need to humble themselves and pray and turn from their wicked ways and seek my face and I will heal their land. So when Israel is, is under threat by the Midianites, the problem is not the Midianites. The problem is that God is angry with Israel. And I think God is angry with western society. He's using the the woke globalists and all that whoever they are, you know, to to try to well he's using it as the rod of his anger. And so we need to repent and look to him and unite and not and I don't say this as a as some kind of a virtue signal but um, we're a diverse society. The saving love of God is diverse. Mhm. Uh, our congregation in Metro Detroit is diverse, so so let's all unite. Forget about ethnicity. Let's let's unite under the banner of Christ, whatever ethnicity we may be. I mean, if you're in a Dutch church with a thousand people that are all Dutch, great. Let's celebrate that. Let's just all repent
1: and turn to Jesus. Yeah, good. Appreciate that. Um, and again, this is this is another one that uh, I, I will happily. Um, I can appreciate the deferral if you'd want to, but when it comes to the mediatorial kingship of Christ, there are, of course, implications in how we live um, in the nation that we're in. And and how does the mediatorial kingship of Christ affect Christians when it comes to political involvement, particularly in how it should inform how we vote? You know, we're coming up on a voting season fairly soon, so it's a fairly pertinent, timely question. Um, So again, answer it however you see fit.
2: Yeah, I would say, first of all, one of the marks of the very statism that many Christians are seeking to oppose is the politicization of life, right? So during the election season, we all get wrapped up in voting as if it's the be all end all Mm -hmm. of societal influence. And I think that in itself is a handcrafted agenda and and a big piece of propaganda from statism. So uh, voting is important. Uh, we should vote. We should vote our conscience. We should. I like how you phrased the question because political involvement and voting, it's not the same thing. Voting is mm-hmm. just a subset. Mm-hmm. There are many things we can do. Even if we disagree about voting, you can have some of the most solid Bible based reformed people who will disagree on voting. The key is that we unite in as many things as possible to advance Christ's agenda. Now, with voting, I've written a booklet. Our committee wrote a booklet on this. Um, I don't know where you can get that. Maybe Crown and Covenant still selling it. Or you can go to Sermon Audio and look up Christ-centered voting on, on our Southfield page. There's there's a thing I did there, too. But But I would say, for me, the biblical criteria for a civil magistrate, Romans 13, is that they are a servant of God. That's the job description. So if somebody's applying to be a servant of God, and, uh, and they deny him, and they reject his word as the defining uh, uh, standard of the difference between the evil they're supposed to punish and the good they're supposed to reward, then I would say they're fundamentally disqualified. You know, if you apply to be a school teacher, but you deny the authority of the school board, you're not going to get the job, and you'd be crazy to hire that person. So I think if somebody doesn't accept, in some sense, Um, the authority of God and his word and his son, then I think there's a huge problem. I think giving the civil sword into the hands of God's enemies, who are people without a credible profession of faith, is a problem. But again, you have people that then will say, well, practically, pragmatically, there aren't godly Christians on the ballot. One of the reasons there aren't is because when godly Christians run, godly Christians refuse to vote for them. Um, we had uh, Pastor Ralph Rebant of the uh, local OPC church, godly man, ran for governor this past year in Michigan, and I was meeting up with uh, uh, a friend of mine from another congregation. I don't think he listens to your podcast, so he won't be offended. But even if he does, you know, he was telling me how, oh no, he's not going to vote for Ralph because uh, you know uh, th- this other person that's running has a better chance. Well he voted for the woman who ended up getting the nomination and she got trounced in in the statewide election so i think ralph did well he got like 5% in the par- primaries which is not horrible but and he's a he's still active politically you know but but here's the problem if christians don't eventually say we got to vote for people that are part of the solution not part of the ungodly problem then the lesser of two evils is is, is just going to get more and more and more evil Till you're voting for Stalin against Hitler or something like that, so I—that's my perspective. But I understand people hold their nose; they vote for the lesser two evils. Good and godly people can disagree on that point. And again, the, the booklet is floating around there somewhere that you can maybe take a look at.
0: You sure, or know that that was helpful, and I believe that booklet still is available there on uh, on Crown and Covenant's website. And and I'll just say, you know, what you said too about uh it, it being Christ, who who is really our problem above all things, uh, just stuck out in my mind. I was reading through Deuteronomy 28 this morning, and that's clear when the curses are being pronounced and who's going to bring them and why they will have no success and why they will run from their enemies and so on and so forth. And as that could be applied to to any common nation today as well. Uh, so So that was good. Um, And so, yeah, we we wanted to address both that mediatorial kingship topic with you because we knew that you, along with Sean, had done uh, extensive committee work on that and some thinking on that. And I think you also addressed the voting issue uh, pastorally and kind of another one of, though though it could be argued that mediatorial kingship and exclusive psalmody aren't RP distinctives, uh, as I think even in a sense you hinted at with the fact that you like to draw on mediatorial kingship from the scriptures and the confession, and one could do likewise with exclusive psalmody. But nevertheless, they're at least practically seen as distinctives. And so we were curious as well to just get from you because uh, you've been beneficial to me. You have, I'd encourage anybody to go listen to your Theological Foundation's lecture where you interact with T. David Gordon's arguments against exclusive psalmody. I've told many people that that was the single most uh, influential piece of material in my own thinking as I was coming uh, to convictions concerning exclusive psalmody. And then you also had a booklet that I think was available at the Southfield Presbytery, or the meeting that you guys hosted uh, on psalmody as well, and, and I found that uh, very helpful, also, and so this was another topic we knew that that you've done some thinking on, and so we were just curious a brief rationale. Uh, many in the RP Church uh, are, you could classify as as practical exclusive Psalmody. They they enjoy it, they love it, they wouldn't have it any other way, but they may not be as convinced of the arguments. They may not even be fully aware of the arguments, and so we we're just curious a brief rationale for our position on exclusive psalmody, and then also, as you did with voting, how how can we pastorally address this doctrine with uh, the practical ep with visitors, with new members, and so forth?
2: Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. You know, as I was preparing for this, I was thinking, man, I haven't had to prepare like this since my presbytery exams. Um, (laughs) And uh, Do do you know what Joe tells
1: people is that this is our revenge um, on everybody for examining us? (laughs)
2: <laughs> you know, I, I will say for those young guys that may be listening to this podcast, preparing for their presbytery exams, I would say study hard, but you got to find some music because we're talking about psalmody here, but just as a pivot, you know, I would always listen to the Rocky soundtrack, you know, various things nice. like that. Anyway, nice. get pumped up to head into the, into the presbytery. Anyway, I still do that. But anyway, nice. um, exclusive psalmody, I, I was, uh, fortunate enough, I guess, cause so many people probably turned them down. They eventually settled on me. But I was asked to speak at the 2019 RPCNA-ARP Joint Synod Pre-Synod Conference where we had uh, lectures that were given in favor of exclusive psalmody and then uh, another lecture from the perspective of the ARP. And I was able to give the, the, uh, the EP side of that. And then there was a Q&A. And I ended up taking my talk from that, turning it into that booklet that you mentioned, Joe. Mm, And so that's really the place I would start. I give that booklet to people when they visit the church or when they're interested in membership. Uh, You can find that for free. uh, Download reformed.com forward slash EP. So that's something your listeners can make use of. But I think in terms of uh, the basic rationale for exclusive solemnity, I mean, I grew up Singing hymns and all kinds of things uh, over the years before I came into the Reformed faith and and uh, became persuaded of exclusive psalmody. So, so in many ways, I mean, I appreciate all all kinds of Christian poetry and songs and of all kinds. There's a lot of edifying uh, man-made literature and and uh, songs out there in some sense, but in terms of what we're to offer to God in our worship, I think, first you got to start with the regulative principle of worship, the second commandment. Um, don't worship God according to man-made idols, but you know those who He speaks of those who love Him and keep His commandments. In particular, as as part of the second commandment, we need to worship God as He has commanded, Deuteronomy chapter twelve, uh, verse. You know, toward the end of that chapter. He says, "Don't add or subtract to his commandments, lest you eventually go so deep down into the wormhole of man-made worship that you end up sacrificing your children." Which Jeremiah seven actually says. God's argument against sacrificing your children in the son of uh, in the valley of the son of Hinnom is that I never commanded it, which is very interesting. Um, so we ought never to add to the ordinances of God's worship. If you think about it, we talk about a worship service, and worship is service. If you go to a restaurant, good service means fulfilling your order, giving you what you asked for, not adding or subtracting from what you've ordered. And so what kind of worship has God ordered? In the New Testament, as well as the Old, because you look at the New Testament, Jesus would not so much as wash his hands before a meal if it had religious significance that came from... The traditions of the elders as opposed to the word of God, Matthew 15. So every aspect of our religious life, if there's any religious significance, the elements of worship, when we think about public worship, must be grounded in biblical warrant, uh, either from a direct commandment or an approved historical example, or good and necessary inference or consequence from the scriptures. So we start there. Uh, Paul in Colossians 2 condemns will worship, um, so much more could be said there. So, mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. our argument, without getting into the weeds of all the different considerations, we don't see any biblical warrant for singing uninspired songs as an offering of worship to God. We don't see it in the Old Testament. We don't see it in the New Testament. During uh, the intertestamental period, they sang the Psalms exclusively among the people of God. And similarly, we're in a, a, a period where revelation has ceased, and the New Testament authors did not add an extra book of the Bible with uh, New Testament hymns. So so we have the Psalms. Um, It's all we have, but it's also all we need, the sufficiency of the Psalter. Paul refers to the Psalms as uh, the word of Christ. Uh, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Luther called it a little Bible. Jesus Right before his death, after the first Lord's Supper, he's going to sing a hymn or he's going to hymn and sing praise with his disciples. He doesn't pull out of his back pocket uh, a new composition. Uh, the Psalms are sufficient even to speak of the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, all the major themes of redemptive history. And so they indisputably sang from uh, the Hallel Psalm, Psalm 118 and the surrounding. So, uh, the Psalms are sufficient. They deal with virtually every biblical doctrine, every major uh, theme or event. And uh, and really Christ is the theme that runs throughout it because he wrote the Psalms uh, by his Holy Spirit. You also have the superiority of the Psalter, um, the lyrics, the authorship. I mean, you know, Isaac Watts versus Jehovah. It's not a difficult decision <laughs> to make. Uh, even notwithstanding Isaac Watts' many, Uh, unfortunately modalistic statements in his writings, even aside from that, even if he was a Trinitarian, still I'll take the Trinity's hymnal written by the Trinity any day of the week. Also, uh, you know, the practical value of singing scripture, teaching your children scripture, memorizing scripture. I think in our various circles, we can do well to improve. Um, Some of our Psalters could be improved, more accurate translations to improve that. Some of our accurate psalters could be updated, so that uh, you know the guy off the street knows what in the world he's singing. So you know there are a lot of improvements down the road, reformation improvement uh, that needs to happen. But there's a huge practical value, whatever of those psalters you're using, um, you can make sense of it, and you're highly edified by memorizing the the psalms in that way. So the way to persuade people, I would say, local congregations. First of all, Mm -hmm. there are people that get persuaded based on bullet point, internet debates. Um, I don't know. That's not my approach. I think just have a faithful Psalm singing church where the Psalms are sung. Well, not too fast, not too slow, you know, have a feel for your people and let the word of Christ just fill the room and have a solid book table, uh, where I think a good rule is, uh, no more than about 10 or 15% of your books should be explicitly RP stuff, by the mm-hmm. way. If people see your book table and it's like, oh, Crown and Covenant, 90%. No offense to Crown and Covenant, but you know you got to have a broad variety. Feed the souls of your people, not just these polemical paperbacks, And but get a couple good items on some worship distinctives. Put them on there in the midst of all the other good stuff from the Reformed tradition more broadly, and also sermon links. As a pastor, you don't got to preach on this stuff every week or every year or, you know, even every two years, you know, send these things out to your congregation on the email list, group chats, and there are a lot of good materials out there and, uh, you know, work smarter, not harder.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And one of the things that you mentioned, I don't know that you put it particularly this way, um, but I found people are more persuaded um, to sing the Psalms exclusively by experience, not necessarily by argument, which kind of goes against every like reformed bone of my body, you know, Um, but it is that practical experience of actually singing the word of God. And, you know, even um, when we're not the best of singers, um, it's still the word of God. And there's, there's a real beauty to seeing the, the word of God um, back to him. Um, so I, I appreciate that. I'm going to ask you this question and uh <laughs> Answer it if you don't, or don't answer it if you don't want to, but uh, you've got a rap name. I think you've, you've made a rap about exclusive psalmody. Could you uh, share our listeners what your rap name is? Yeah,
2: well, so I can't confirm or deny, you know, I've had a lot of, my hip hop career was, was short and sweet. Um, and uh, most of it I've been able to keep off of the internet, but there is one track out there. If you go to YouTube, uh, Rapper Delivers Regulative Principle, treatise something like that mm. uh if you just search rapper regulative that should narrow it down um and the the artist on there is his goes by the name adamant so i you know it's unclear who that may be mm, but
1: yeah definitely but, very uh, very uh, <laughs> mysterious. Yeah,
2: that was not my original name you know that th- that was just uh, a one-time thing at the time i had a buddy who was uh doing some beats and he helped me put that together and i did the the lyrics but that was 2008. I was in seminary. It was like, what is it now? 15 years ago. Mm. So check that out. I think, um, you know, Eminem, you know, was at eight mile. I live up just shy of 11 mile. So it's, it's, yeah. know, there, there, there's something about Metro Detroit that just kind of, you know, that kind of thing plays well and, uh, not sure how well it'll play down in Indiana or <laughs> Colorado or whatever, but
1: yeah, well that, uh, That song or rap may or may not be our outro music for this podcast. We'll see what happens. (laughs) All right. Well, switching gears a little bit. Um, This is, uh, as, as Joe and I like to say, kind of our perennial question that we ask all of our guests here. Um, In that, you know, they're all uh, pastors, they're all preachers. So we like to ask them about their uh, preaching experience and kind of their view of preaching. So what is Adam Keener's philosophy of preaching? Um, That is, how do you think about preaching? What is it? What are you trying to accomplish? How do you go about crafting a sermon? What kind of things do you bring to the pulpit with you? Um, So there you go again. I'm just throwing a bunch of stuff at you. So um, feel free to answer in whatever order you feel like.
2: Yeah, this uh, this is a heavy question. I would say this I mean in terms of philosophy or theology of preaching, for me I would I would hang my hat on mark chapter 12 35 through 37 uh, where at the, at the very end as Jesus is quoting Psalm 110 and uh, pinning the Pharisees to the wall, it says, and the common people heard him gladly. So I would say for myself that that's my text, that that I did preach on it once. I found a way to meander over there from my Matthew series and work it in as a parallel text, but uh, the the common people heard him gladly. So obviously Jesus is our model um, and he's the greatest preacher of all time. And for me, this verse just summarizes everything that I love about the, the preaching ministry of Christ. And if, if preaching of a minister today is the word of Christ, right? If he's preaching through us, then we want to, as best as we can, try to emulate those things in his ministry that were exemplary. So in that particular passage, right, you've got these theological scholars and they're lording it over the people and, and just taking it to the bank and uh, blowing their trumpet and getting all the praise of men. But Jesus cuts through it and uh, says to them, you know, Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, uh, and he says, if, if that's David's son, because they said, well, it's the son of David, they would say that's a reference to the Messiah. Then how can David call him Lord? And it's a simple passage, and Jesus quotes it in a very simple, understandable way so that the common person could easily understand and even refute the greatest scholars who oppose the gospel. So in, in that passage, I see Jesus as speaking boldly. Um, he, he's, he doesn't tiptoe around, you know, the righteous is as bold as a lion. He addresses the issue directly. I think people appreciate that. I think the common people want to hear a preacher that has something to say, who's willing to say it and not afraid and not pulling punches where necessary. Um, Also, Jesus was very gracious. He actually asks the Pharisees a question and listens to their response and interacts respectfully. Uh, You do see as an exception to the rule at times where Jesus wisely and discerningly will utter these these bone-chilling woes on his enemies. But for the most part, Jesus interacts with people, very gracious. People appreciate that. They don't want a a fire-breathing polemicist in the pulpit. Um, Jesus is gracious gracious words came out of his mouth he was authoritative he could have spoken on his own authority and he did sometimes but often he would cite the scripture Um, he, he says that David in the Psalms by the spirit says Psalm 110 verse 1 so he's quoting the scripture he's expounding it authoritatively not the tradition of the elders not recounting all the, you know, the four views and the major commentators, but he, he knows the scripture, he declares it, and he doesn't apologize for it. He speaks plainly. Um, you hear Reformed preachers sometimes, and I can hardly understand what they're saying, and you wonder what people are thinking in the pews, you know, with their dictionary, looking up, you know, architectonic, what does that mean? Uh, this is a huge problem. We need to preach. The Bible makes sense. To the common people. I mean, there's tough passages, of course, but but the Bible, for the most part, people get it. And uh, so they should get our preaching too. They should mm-hmm. understand it.
1: So you're and, saying people uh, don't bring uh, Muller's Theological Dictionary with them on Sunday morning?
2: Yeah, keep it in the kitchen, <laughs> right? Keep it in the kitchen. That Muller is essential, right? I love Muller. No question about it. Muller's essential in the kitchen when you're cooking it up, but not mm-hmm. when you're serving up the dish, right? I mean, people want, people want to eat. They don't want, uh, you know, a stack of cookbooks at the dinner table. So, um, you know, what, what is it? Art carefully concealed, something like that. So, uh, and, and then lastly, intelligently. So Jesus uses logic like a razor's edge, and he pins the Pharisees to the mat. And the people heard him gladly. Now, whether all of them were converted, the point is they got the gist of it. And they almost, some of them were chuckling. They're like, wow, this is amazing. Um, he just totally pulled one on the Pharisees who were, you know, uh, anyway. So, so that's, that's, a, that's a passage for me that's, that really is in my DNA, hopefully, by God's grace. That's, that's what I want to be doing. Um, sermon prep, I would say this. I probably put in less direct sermon prep for any given sermon, than most preachers but i would say that compared to most preachers i would suspect perhaps i put in a lot more overall preparation in other words my philosophy is why would i spend a lion's share of my study time researching all the ins and outs of every given passage when i may not even ever preach that passage again right i'm not building a reservoir my, my uh, knowledge is becoming obsolete every week. So my approach is spend a lot of time reading broadly. Um, yes, of course, knowing the, the book that I'm studying, the book that, you know, but these are things if I'm reading broadly and studying vigorously in a whole host of areas, I'm actually going to maybe pick the next book I preach based upon a whole host of insights that I've already added to the reservoir So that now, um, like I'm in Romans, well, I wanted to preach Romans for a long time, but I didn't preach it for many, many years till I felt like, okay, I've got enough in the tank here to get started. And then you learn more things through the series, but there needs, you you really shouldn't be preaching a book like, oh, this will be interesting. I know nothing about this book and it'll be fun. Like, I don't think that's, I don't think people necessarily want to hear a sermon series from someone who was like, I don't know anything about Colossians, but hey, this will be nice. Um, we'll all learn together. You know, So I try to just learn as much as I can. And where I see the Lord giving me more and more insight on one book or another book or one text or another text, I see that as God leading me in that direction to preach on something that I've been thinking about for years. And um, so I would say fill the reservoir and uh, read the big hardbacks. And again, be guided by God's providence in your own situation. Sometimes you're going to have more time to study, sometimes less. I have found that my sermon prep time was cut in at least uh, by two thirds when I started preaching evangelistically, extemporaneously at rescue missions, street corners, abortion clinics. When I preach or even just family worship, Sabbath school, midweek, any chance where you can start to get off the runway with extemporaneous exposition and application of the word um, that gets you to the point where you know preparing any given sermon I mean I'm not preaching extemporaneously. I have you know one page of notes, a half page of notes to guide me but uh, it really reduced my sermon prep time. And um so that, you know, people say, Oh, I don't have enough time to evangelize. I didn't have enough time to not evangelize. My sermon prep took forever until I started evangelizing more. And now I've got a lot more time, uh, less time spent on the ins and outs of my sermon outline. So um, but that takes time. And so you just let the Lord guide you. I, I would never tell someone do what I do, uh, you know, but I can just tell you what I do and maybe there's some usefulness in that.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, when I think about kind of what you're saying, um, if you had to like, I don't know, you had a pie pie chart of your week, um, what percentage goes to the actual preparation of the sermon that Lord's day? And then what you know percentage do you think goes into other theological studies that you may be involved in?
2: That's a good question. I mean, so I'm a clerk of Presbytery. Um, I do my best to stay out of the, you know, I don't know. I don't do a good job. I end up getting involved in pretty much anything in, in the life of the denomination. I, it's difficult for me to say no. My kids ask me, where do you stand on the issues of the Senate? I say, usually near the microphone. So <laughs> I'm I'm involved in a lot of things. So it's hard to know. Um, I mean, definitely I'm spending I, I – it'd be hard to tell you how long. But one, one thing I'll say is this. this maybe this will help to illustrate is that one thing that an older pastor taught me, this also helped me reduce my time you know, for sermon prep, was take a break. You know, when I first started the ministry, I was spending 20 minutes on, a, sorry, it's 20 minutes, 20 hours on a sermon. Um, one sermon, you know, some weeks I'm preaching twice. So, wow, that, that's unsustainable. And what he said is, no way should you ever work on the same sermon for eight hours, you know, devoting the whole day. Cause I would do that. You know, I I'd, mm-hmm. I'd devote, but you know, after about three hours, it's garbage time. You're not really making progress mm-hmm. on anything. So I would say I try to sit down, maybe spend two or three hours on a sermon, or if things are really flowing, cause I preach at least twice a week, I might spend an hour and a half on each one and basically get the gist of where I'm going and what, what, what I'm seeing in the text and maybe which commentators I want to check and so on and so forth. And then I'll leave it. And then I'll come back the next day. Maybe I'll wait a day. I'll come back Wednesday and I'll spend another, you know, maybe the whole morning on one or two sermons, make some progress. Then I'll maybe wait till the end of the week, spend another two or three hours. So in the meantime, my mind refreshes and there are things I see to improve and things that Make a whole lot more sense after I've given it a day, two days, three days, that if I just plow through five, six, seven, eight hours, it would be a total nightmare. So that's if you space it out, um, you know, you might spend 10 hours even on two sermons. Now, you might do extra reading that goes above and beyond that. You might be thinking about it, jotting things down on your phone at different times thinking about it while you're driving around in the car. So it's hard to quantify actually how much time you're spending. But let's say you spent 10 hours on two sermons, but you spaced it out. It actually wouldn't feel like you spent a lot of time. That's why I say it's hard for me to know. But if you accumulated it all, I mean, I work like a dog. I'm very busy. I'm sure I spend a lot of time, but not as much as I did before, maybe is what I'm trying to say.
1: Mm Yeah. Yeah. Well, I guess maybe one more question about preaching and then Joe can jump in if he has any other questions on the preaching as well. Um, I, I've uh, had the benefit of listening to your like Sunday school lectures, but I don't think I've ever heard any of your sermons. Um, when it comes to how you preach, are you like a three-point kind of guy, are you more uh, Plutonian, and that you have one point in different moves? or, or um, like what? What is your preaching style?
2: Yeah, I, I would say one thing for sure is i don't like formula preaching i like to you know my structure is going to be based on what i think i need to get the point across so at any given time i would say i didn't prepare to answer this i'm so in the sense of where i'm going here but i probably have a half dozen different structures that I could identify in, you know, 900 sermons, 800 sermons, however many it is. There are about maybe five or six types of sermons or structures of sermons that I've used. So I think it's good to have those on your tool belt. Uh, And if you're preaching a narrative versus Paul's epistles, I mean, there can be all kinds of different ways that you do it. You could just be expounding the text word by word. You could use Peter Van Maastricht's The Best Method of Preaching, which I actually think is the best method of preaching. If I had if I was going to teach some of my guys, and I probably will some of our guys locally uh, how to preach. I would start with that. Peter Van Maastricht, The Best Method of Preaching, where he and this is the classical Puritan model. You see it with Edwards. Uh, There's a guy. There's a, a an O.P. minister who uses this method, Michael Spangler. I know there's some controversy, but I know him personally. He's a good, good preacher. And um, if you find his sermons, he uses this method meticulously. He was, he's one of the guys who I think was translating the Latin of Van Maastricht. So you may see him on the dust jacket of your, your volume there, but he uses it. So if you wanna hear it, you can listen to him, Michael Spangler, and he uses this method, but you start with the context and um, you comment about the text, about the context, about the basic meaning. So you're summarizing the basic meaning of the text. Then you draw out the chief doctrine that you're going to be focusing on. If you've read Edward's sermons, you know where I'm going here. This is typical of him. You get the doctrine, and then that doctrine, you've codified it, uh, this statement in, in pregnant language. So then You expound what the words mean in your summary of the teaching of the text. You defend or ground them in scripture. You um, answer objections. And then eventually you come to the application. Now, I often, when I do this, uh, Spangler does a much better job of balancing the whole method out. You could tell he spent a lot of time on this. For me, when I use this method, I end up focusing so much on expounding and defending my doctrine that I end up embedding the application all the way through. But again, you can modify it. But when you get to the application, now you've got everything ready to go and you apply it to the lives of the people. So I think if you were going to start with a structural model just to get going as your baseline method, that's the best method of preaching. But I I deviate from that. I have, like I say, I had Dr. Pruto in seminary. Um, I'm familiar with a lot of different methods. So I try to be eclectic in that sense to keep people guessing. And, um, you know, sometimes you don't want to be too tied to your, your notes or your method. I mean, I was ready to preach a didactic sermon the other uh, Sabbath evening on optimistic eschatology, which is not, you know, a typical subject for me. Um, and I had a, a young family come in that I hadn't seen in like four years and, they needed to hear the gospel. They were here, They were there to hear the gospel. They were probably not going to make heads or tails of what I was planning to say and a lot of what I was saying. Even, you know, it was more a sermon for believers. So I just deviated in the first five to eight minutes because my text, it, it, it jived with my text to do it. My whole intro was just preaching the gospel. So, you you know, I think you have to be focused on preparing yourself even more so than your method or your structure, so that you can do what you need to do to be faithful in any any given context. But I would say for young preachers, try Van Maastricht, test out the method. I've found that, you know, it it means essentially using that method means that your worst sermon is going to be that much better than other people's worst sermons or than your worst sermon would have been otherwise. It really raises the floor on your preaching. Uh, it's tough to mess up with that particular method. So I think it's a good, good way to go.
0: I'm with you on that. Um, as far there's a certain logic to those three steps that the Puritans put forward that the mind works through. Um, I read an article by Beaky one time, and his only critique was that. Perhaps, at least maybe he was just saying in today's age, a little bit more time could be used on the exegesis, a little less on the doctrine ratio-wise. But nevertheless, those movements, um, I'm with you. I'm with you. Uh, amen to everything you said. Um, building off of of what you said there, you are you did mention street preaching. And so just curious a little bit as we transition into the question on evangelism, uh, just how does your street p- preaching differ from your pulpit preaching, uh, prep, anything like that you'd like to touch on? And then um, just, just overall, what do you see the pastor's role in evangelism and in leading the congregation in evangelism? And then just broadly, what role does apologetics have when you're out on the street doing evangelism?
2: Yeah, great questions. Uh, First, I would say what I try to uh, get across within our own congregation is we do not evangelize to grow the church. We grow the church to evangelize. Mm -hmm. So right off the bat, our goal is to proclaim the gospel. We're sowing. We may not be reaping. We have church info on our tracts, but we don't preach ourselves. So if, you know, we know that if the Lord sent us all the people that we hope are being saved, we would our, our boat would sink. So we know God has many churches, many places where he uh, sends people, sends new converts. We're confident that he knows what he's doing. Um, so our goal is to, we want the church to grow so that we have more resources to devote to evangelism. So uh, not necessarily, oh, let's grow the church, because then what happens is all of a sudden, oh, we've met the budget. Now there's not the same urgency to evangelize. Uh, So be careful with that. You know, there are three different kinds of evangelism. So you've got preaching either in the pulpit or on the streets. You've got parental evangelism, evangelizing our children. We've got personal evangelism, hospitality, sharing Christ at the Thanksgiving dinner table, which, you know, has sometimes can be just as controversial as street preaching. But, But the point is, that these things are in a symbiotic relationship. So it's not street preaching versus lifestyle evangelism because what happens is most people, when we shoot that arrow of conviction to the person walking down the street, if they're convicted, they're probably not gonna come back to us. Sometimes they do, but they're probably gonna go to someone they know and love in their family or uh, in their workplace who they know is a Christian. I've had this happen to me when I was an insurance agent people would get a track from someone and then come and talk to me because they knew I was a Christian. So, um, so we're trying to work together. We're, we're all on the same team here and we're reaching people that maybe don't necessarily, uh, either they won't go to that other Christian or some people don't even know any Christians. Right. Um, but we plant the seed. And then when they meet a Christian, they can ask them about it. So, so there are all these different things that we're doing. Street evangelism is just one of many things that uh that we should be doing i think pastors should take the lead because it's uh you know faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of god we need to be preaching on the streets uh we hand out tracts we talk to people but if possible you want to be proclaiming the word and so the pastor should be leading that should be uh kind of monitoring supervising if there are some other gifted brethren who participate in that i'm not opposed to that we've we've had some some faithful brothers help us there And uh, But kind of overseeing it, leading the charge, but then equipping other people to take the lead. I'm at a stage now where, uh, you you know, in Southfield, we we need more officers, right? We have the same number of officers we had when we had uh, almost like a third of the people we have now. So I'm doing a whole host of things. I can't necessarily lead the charge the way I once did. And so we have people now that will help schedule that and get that going. And, uh, uh, but yeah, sometimes the pastor has to jumpstart it. Our goal is just like the apostles. They filled Jerusalem with their doctrine, you know, reform people. We've got all this doctrine, uh, you know, f- fill, fill my study with uh, doc. No, fill Jerusalem with, with apostolic doctrine. Let's get out there and take this stuff to the streets and so I we found people join our church because they're they're like you guys are out there doing this and um and they get excited about that. Uh, we've also had people that met up with us on the streets were converted and are now communicant members. So it's not a ton of people, but there are some. And uh, God has really blessed that in terms of apologetics to keep people's attention. Uh, this is another thing that will help your pulpit preaching as a pastor. If you're street preaching, you got about six point two seconds to keep people's attention. So you gotta you gotta keep it um interesting. And one of the ways to do that is apologetics, where you're setting up conflicts of worldviews and ideas. And th- this is an idea people have heard before or an objection against the Christian faith or, you know, dealing with atheism or evolution or whatever. And uh people perk up their ears. Uh, some people are offended, but uh you know, an offended person sometimes will listen more eagerly than someone who, who's mm-hmm. fallen asleep. So, uh, you know, you have to be careful there, but yeah, I think apologetics is, is crucial.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, there's a, a whole host of other questions we could ask about that, but our, our time is running short. So we'll, uh, we'll start to wrap up here. Um, but before Joe gets to the, uh, mystery question, which he just loves, um, <laughs> you do, you get this goofy look on your face every time you ask it. <laughs> Uh, before we get there, uh, what are some ways that our listeners can pray for you in the Southfield congregation?
2: Well, I already alluded to it. I would say, uh, pray for us that the Lord would be raising up officers. Um, I'm, I think older than probably more than two thirds of our communicant members. So we've got a lot of young, excited people that, that love the Lord, but you know, that takes time for the Lord to develop that maturity, the gifts, graces, and uh, confidence and trust within the church. So uh, on our session is myself and two ruling elders. We have no deacons. We do have five diaconal interns and uh, that internship's coming to an end, the end of this year. And so we're really hoping that we can uh, nominate and elect some deacons and maybe an elder or elders if the Lord wills in the not too distant future We also have uh, a couple, several guys looking at possibly the ministry or various missionary work. So just that the Lord would make us a greenhouse of spiritual gifts and graces to bless us and to bless the church at
1: large.
0: Well, thank you. That's good. Yes, thank you. All right.
1: Um, Look at you trying to control your face. I'm watching it right now. You're literally trying to keep yourself from grinning. (laughs)
0: What is this mystery
2: question? I mean, I have. Do I get to phone a friend or fifty-fifty or?
0: It's all on you. It's all okay. you're. You're alone and on an island. Um, <sighs> no, this one will be all good. They're they're not hard, but this is this one. The way you I got answer... Mueller
2: right next to him. There you go. You got Mueller. <laughs> okay, he's right here, He's just, ready to jump in. Just
0: keep
1: it simple. You know, speak in the common tongue. We want to be glad to hear you. Yeah.
0: No, just, just to add a little bit of pressure, I think you will be the one that settles this debate unless you give us uh, a, a uh, I don't know, answer. So right now, so we, we we like to settle fun little, fun little cheeky debates on here uh, with these mystery questions. The first. I'm not, I'm not going to go on. Anyway, you're going to settle the debate probably. So the debate we're looking to settle this month with these last four guests we've had, you are the fourth and final for this particular question, concerns Rahab's lie. Was Rahab's lie lawful and right, or was it unlawful and wrong? What says Adam Keener?
2: Well, I mean... Right off the bat, you're, you're calling it Rahab's lie. So I think, would that not even be a, a little biased against uh, one of the perspectives? That, you know, I, I would look at it this way. Um, I try to help people to make the judgment call on this, right? And I do that by saying, first of all, you've got the ninth commandment. You've got uh, numerous statements. It's impossible for God to lie. All liars have their place in the lake of fire. Uh, lying is a sin presenting something as though it's true when it's false is a violation of the moral law okay nowhere in the new testament does it ever commend rahab for speaking untruth or for lying as you put it nowhere is there an explicit commendation of that aspect of what she did uh the scriptures commend sarah for calling abraham lord But she called him Lord in connection with laughing at God's promise, right? So God is able to commend people for things they've done, even though some other things they did in that same context were not in keeping with the moral law. So keep that in mind. Uh, I would say at face value, confessionally and biblically and ethically, it would be very difficult not to condemn Rahab's lie at the same time in defense of the other view. Uh, The fact is that there are examples of righteous deception in the scriptures uh, and military deception would be one. You know, David with the mulberry trees and all that and uh, luring people out of the city of A.I. under Joshua and then, you know, tricking them. So but I think that's allowable because the rules of engagement are such in warfare that that's understood. Uh, the Puritans wrote about this. If you're playing a game that involves some level of deception, the rules of the game are such. Now, this is not the kind of game you want to really get into teaching your kids how to lie or something like that, playing poker every night. But but if it's the rule of the game, it's understood. It's not necessarily a lie. Uh, also, you know, do you pump fake in basketball, right? I mean, if you pump fake, you're trying, you're making the guy think you're going to shoot. So he jumps, and goes flying in the air. So there's an element of this. Now, is Rahab engaging in military deception? Has she defected to the Israelites? I think somebody could try to make that case, okay? But the danger of saying, in general terms, we can lie to protect life. Well, where does it end? Why not lie to protect property? God's law protects that too. Why not lie to protect your reputation? Um, You're basically turning the ninth commandment on its head. So I, I would be very leery. Of giving uh, credence to to that view that you can just lie for pragmatic reasons, but I would say if it's military deception, and then I'll leave that as an open debate. Was Rahab engaging in military deception? That I'm gonna, so I'm gonna leave that one. I would tend to say it was a sin. I'd be totally fine saying she sinned, but overall she did a great thing by faith. Um, with the caveat that potentially you might justify it as military deception
0: yeah no, that was good. So that did settle the debate. Rahab's lie was a lie that was unlawful. We've settled that here. I with you, i I when I preached on that, Augustine was helpful in making distinctions just briefly. and I actually did use the basketball pump fake or leaving your lights on uh, when you go on vacation and and one helpful distinction there is that there's um, you aren't you aren't knowingly doing something contrary to what you intend like i intend to fake you out the deception is on your side of things you know or or in military like you're intending to fake someone out but you're not as with a lie you are knowingly speaking contrary to the truth so when i pump fake i know what i'm doing i'm intending to fake you out um with with the action there's no there's no internal contradiction if you will versus what I know to be true and what I'm speaking, and that was that was helpful for me in distinguishing between military deception or game deception and and a verbal uh, lie. But no, that was good. That was good. We settled the debate. Mr. Murray, you can close us out.
1: Well, Adam, thank you for uh, breaking your podcast rule and being our guest today. It has been a a joy uh, on our part, for sure. So as we uh, close this episode, our guest has been Adam Keener, pastor of Southfield Reformed Presbyterian Church in Southfield, Michigan, just close to eight mile um, there in Detroit so like this episode you can rate and review us on itunes or whatever podcast catcher you use you can share this episode on social media if you have a question you'd like us to ask the pastors we have on this podcast or you'd like us to interview your pastor you can email us at bluebanterpodcast at gmail.com bluebanterpodcast at gmail.com and until next time whether you eat drink or banter do all to the glory of god